Well, people were doing uh, Chinese archaeology dealing with the central part of China for, uh, from the 30s and 40s. There was a Swede named uh, Andersen, uh, Gunnar Andersen, who uh, was essentially the father of Chinese archaeology uh, from around the 30s of the last century. But it, very few people have been looking into Central Asia. Now, there were uh, people like another Swede, uh, Sven Hedin, mm -hmm. and um, Sir Arl Stein, uh, who had been doing work in this area, but they weren't interested in the mummies. So they were, they were out there going around the Xinjiang, the Tarim Basin, in the, the early part of the 20th, uh, 20th century. But nobody was really paying much attention at all to these, the mummies. Uh, and they were mostly looking for texts. They were looking for things that were uh, related to classical, uh, the classical tradition of the West. Uh, they weren't particularly interested in anything local there. Uh, they wanted to get evidence of like Alexander in Central Asia and so forth. They would actually dig up a mummy, come upon it by chance and look at it, maybe photograph it, uh, put, put it back in the ground. And they, they didn't take them back to Europe. They didn't study them. They were just like curiosities. They, the, the Chinese really didn't get seriously interested. I mean, there were one or two uh, in the 40s uh, and 50s. But, you know, after the main uh, thrust of the Chinese into archaeology in, in this area was from uh, uh, the late 70s. Mm -hmm. And that's when the mummies started to pop up. And all of, the, uh, all of these artifacts were from that period and later. Well, there were some, from, uh, there are a few things that were turning up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the 50s were just like the, the Chinese were starting to exert themselves in that area mm -hmm. with, the, you know, trying to get control, political control. But there wasn't much construction. During the 60s, there was a lot of chaos because of the Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. So nothing much was going on. But after Deng Xiaoping in the 70s, uh, then, you know, and Nixon goes and China starts to uh, industrialize and things get normalized, then construction. Mm -hmm. and, and so these mummies and all of these artifacts were the result of um, construction projects. Like, oh, oh. Uh, they, they, it wasn't from planned archaeology. It was, it was from um, building roads, dams, uh, schools, factories, hospitals. That's what 98% of all archaeological uh, discovery in China is the result of this, uh, construction. There's one uh, mummy that you don't see, but I, I've seen it. I mean, it's not uh, one that is publicized, but I've seen it. It's sliced in half by a bulldozer. Oh, geez. I mean, that's exactly, you know, they just were digging a road right. yeah. through, and they went right through this. And they went, whoops, we better stop and see what's here. <laughs> yeah, and then, they would, uh, then you call in the archaeologist, and those are salvage rescue operations. Were and they Chinese archaeologists or yeah. Western archaeologists? Oh no, the Westerners weren't involved in okay. this at all. Well, did you um, did you, you did your graduate work on uh, Buddhist related? literature, Chinese Buddhist, Buddhist literature. literature? And then, yeah. as you after you had your PhD and were teaching, you read in the field and became intrigued by all of this because that's well, here's not archaeology. Here's either. how it happened. Yeah. Okay, the first twenty years of my career were involved with. Uh, the study, philological study of uh, manuscripts mm -hmm. from caves. It's sort of like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls of China. Got it. Have, have you heard of the site called Dunhuang? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, th there were 40, 
40 or 50,000 manuscripts from those caves. And there are a lot of beautiful wall paintings. Many people have traveled there. It's where the Silk Road splits and goes south and north. And that's the end of the Great Wall. And then this place called Dunhuang is right mm -hmm. there. And the Silk Road sort of splits in two parts. The caves were there, and in one cave, a very small cave actually, you know, not much bigger than this corner here, but full of manuscripts. And I studied one particular uh, set of manuscripts from there, which were the earliest vernacular texts in Chinese. Hmm. The earliest written vernacular. Dated to when? Eighth, ninth, tenth century. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Medieval. Uh, so, you know, for 20 years, my first 20 years of my career, I was working on those manuscripts. Um, studying them, publishing them, translating them, and, uh, and that involved me in my traveling out in Central Asia a lot. So just to do research and to, uh, to uh, look at the manuscripts, look at the caves where they came from, and uh, compare the contents with wall paintings and so forth. So I was constantly running around out there. And uh, one of the ways I financed some of my trips was to take uh, groups like Smithsonian mm -hmm. or Penn groups. I've taken groups from the Penn Museum back in the 80s. And uh, so I would go to the museums with these groups or by myself if, I, if that's the way it was arranged in a particular summer. And um, so I'd been to this Urumqi Museum many times. Mm -hmm. ah, where, a lot of the, where all of these objects are from? No, these, most, uh, then most of them are from okay. there, but uh, uh, some of them are from the Institute of Archaeology in Urumqi. Okay. Okay. And you know, they, they, it's, there's a big division between those two. The museum is where you put things for permanently, and the Institute is where after they dig things up, they study them. 88, I was leading a Smithsonian group. And uh, I went into, uh, into the museum again, and then there was a totally new display. I, I had to enter this room through black curtains, and it was very dark. And I went in, and there was this room full of mummies. I, I thought it was curious, I and mean, I actually thought it was a, sort of a hoax, because they looked too real, too live, and I thought it was like Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. <laughs> yeah. You've never or, seen mummies like that. No. I mean, yeah, no one had. Uh, and, and um, so I was really, first of all, I really did think it was a hoax because, you know, China was starting to promote tourism and they looked so lifelike. The skin was so, the color was just life tone. And, uh, and, and also I was troubled that they, their, their textiles seemed so recent and uh, the colors were so vibrant. I thought, this couldn't be from what they're saying, like 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And then they had all of these nice tools and uh, technology, like bronze and everything. And I thought, can't be for this period. I mean, I, at that time, I was not an archaeologist, and I, but just my general knowledge. I knew enough about Chinese history China, and, yeah. and about Central Asia, so I said, this doesn't make sense. But I spent, you know, I sort of forgot about my Smithsonian charges and said, <laughs> you, you go back to the hotel. And uh, I, I literally left them and, and, and sent them back. And I stayed in that room probably about four or five hours that afternoon. I should, we were only supposed to be there in the museum for an hour and a half, but I couldn't tear myself away. And there was this one particular mummy. Um, he's from the same tomb complex as the little baby. Yeah, you know, it's, it's where the, the, I call this guy Ur David, Ur David. Or is like, like super ancient. Okay. That's a German word. Yeah. Uh, so he, 
It, it's either his father or his grandfather, because this little baby is buried right next to him. Really? And, mm. and they're all wearing this burgundy textile. The family, and they all have the blue and red uh, friendship bracelets around them or wrapped around, uh, usually it's around the wrist. So he's related to that man that I call Ur David. Wow. And... Uh, but I you didn't know about him at the time. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. he was there too? Yeah. Okay. They're all three of them. There's a, the wife, either his, either his mother or his grandma, probably his grandma and his, um, and his grandpa are in this one big tomb. And then he's in a little side tomb, this, this little fellow. And uh, so I kept looking at that man that I call Ur David. He's called Churchin Men by the... C-H-A-R-C-H-A-N, sometimes it's C-H-E-R. I just kept staring at him. I, I looked at all the mummies in the room, but I, I, could, I was drawn to him because he looks like my brother David. <gasps> oh. really. I mean, he looks spitting image. Of, they look just so they like... So called him Old David. Old David, <laughs> Su super ancient David. Super ancient David. Yeah. So that was in 1988, and I left the museum, and I rejoined with my Smithsonian charges, and I uh, went back to being a uh, scholar of medieval Buddhist literature, Chinese popular Buddhist literature, 88, 89, 90, 91. And then I was, I was at the National Humanities Center in Research Triangle Park down there, uh, between, you know, there's North Carolina State, and, uh, UNC, and Duke, there's a triangle. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of it, there's a research park. And in that research park, there's something called the National Humanities Center, where, where I had a felt. It's sort of like the Princeton Advanced okay, Institute. Right. Okay. So I was there. And in September, I always, I, I've tried to figure, re, reconstruct this. It's either September 21st or 26th. There were front page stories in the New York Times and in the Washington Post. And they had a little newspaper nook in that center. I was reading it and I was just stunned because it was the announcement of the discovery of Let's see the Iceman. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there I was, you know, writing, doing my sinology, doing my Buddhist studies, and, going, <gasps> and, and I thought, <laughs> why that is so meaningful to me? Because my father was born right near where that Iceman was found, mm -hmm. and my father used to when he was a little boy, he used to pasture his herd, his cows up in the same area. Is it, was it? Germany and it's it's Austria. Austria? It's it's Near the border, on the border right. between Austria and Italy. In Italy, okay. Yeah, right. That was in 1991, September, in the 20th, the 20th, the 21st, 26th, something like that. That that very afternoon, I was reading that thing in the in the morning. That very afternoon, I started to make calls to organize an expedition. Uh, that was the beginning of my year down there. And I was supposed to, I, mean, I did ultimately do some philology and do my translations but and stuff. you used your time off to change careers. <laughs> change my career, yeah. So I, I spent two years organizing the first expedition. And it was, I got funding. And uh, it, was, it was going to be, uh, I mean, I, was, I have to say in retrospect, I was naive because I thought it was going to all be uh, genetics. So I, the first person I called was uh, the great, Luigi Luca Cavalli Sforza. Mm -hmm. He's so famous. He's, he's like a Nobel quality scholar and does the most important works in population genetics. Uh, and he, I mean, out of the blue, I approached him and he, um, he said he'd be the co-PI of my uh, investigation. He was very, very interested. 
Because you know, he understands uh, you know, the pattern of genetics for the whole world. So he knew that whoever was right there in the Bronze Age was very important mm -hmm. uh, because in terms of population movements and so forth, and he really wanted to know. So he helped me get funding, and he said he would even go out there with me, except that then he had a heart attack and he couldn't. Mm -hmm. So he sent a young Italian geneticist uh, named Paolo Francolacci. He and Fra Francolacci and I went up in 1993. So, you know, from 1991 to 93, I spent planning mm -hmm. and fundraising and getting permission from the Chinese. Now, you weren't excavating. You were just no. studying the material that had already been excavated. Or going to sites with Chinese who were excavating. And sometimes I would revisit sites that had already been excavated. Uh, mm -hmm. But I went to many different sites. 1993, I, I, I went out there with Francolacci. It was a, amazing that I went out there and uh, was able to do this wor initial work and actually took a lot of tissue samples from hmm. uh, 52 tissue samples from different parts of the basin. So it, I did manage to get six samples out. Uh, and then Frank Lachi studied them for a couple of years, and he, he did get a, uh, a result. It was very difficult because ancient DNA studies then were in their infancy. Right. And it, it's, you know, a lot of techniques are necessary to amplify and to interpret. Uh, so eventually he worked, he really literally worked for two years and he got a result that showed a European haplotype, mm -hmm. which is good. But the thing is, I became sort of disenchanted because... I thought I, w I hadn't naively assumed that, you know, that genetics is so scientific and so special that it would tell you, like, where these people came from. It, but it's very general, just sort of, a lot of Europeans have this. Uh -huh. But some other right. people have it too, but probably they're Europeans, but... It didn't give you any specific... Yeah, like uh, Italy, yeah, Germany, uh, Southeastern Europe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, and also it's very hard to tell time depths. Uh, you know, you, it, you don't know when... The ranges are extremely broad. Right, yeah. Well, so did you go back, did you continue doing that kind of work, or did you get mm -hmm. involved in working on excavations, or did you, what did you No, do every after? time I would take back different kind of scholars, you know, like oh, textile like people textiles. or bronze, okay. bronze people, or uh, to dig, look at a different aspect of the uh, culture okay. and the civilization. So uh, that, that's how I was able to write my books and my articles. And, uh, also gather the latest published information in mm -hmm. Chinese mm -hmm. uh, and make it available to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, go to the museums, observe myself, go to the Institute of Archaeology, observe myself, go out to sites and, and write about things and, and look in, you know, places that had already been excavated and go with really good archaeologists who would tell me what was there, what was brought out, and see things in storerooms. And, you know, there are a lot of little... Um, museums that tourists never go to all over, you know, like they're little local town museums. Uh -huh. yep. So I went to all of those and um, recorded things that nobody knew about. And essentially, you know, people outside of China didn't even really know much about what was in Urumqi even, or much less in the Institute of Archaeology. So I was bringing all this stuff out hmm. and making it available and interpreting it and uh, having... Uh, you know, the big conference here in 1996, mm -hmm. which I think was the watershed. And a lot of people say that. You know, that, that, that conference in April 96 really changed the way people looked at, uh, look at Eurasian history, prehistory. Mm -hmm. It was a magnificent conference. 
it, it was in uh, Rainey Auditorium, and it was filled every mm -hmm. day. Uh, I, 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 the, the first person, the first person in, in, in the English West, or, in yeah. English, in okay. the West. So, you know, when, when I, in 1993, I came back, and I think, and I told people like Vince Piggott, and, you know, they all wanted to have a big show here. You know, in spite of all these improbabilities and restrictions. And obstacles. And obstacles. Then yeah. we finally get, we learn a lot. We have nice things like this, and um, a lot of books and articles mm -hmm. have been published. So people know about the mummies now, and um, new, new mummies keep, new artifacts keep turning up. And mm -hmm. um, so they're now part, I, I would say they're now part of discourse in, in a way, that, you know, before it was just a big lacuna in the middle of Eurasia. Right. How is it that these three mummies are the ones that were chosen to be part of the show? Peter Keller said, I want that one, I want that one, and I want that one. He could have picked anything he wanted. Okay. I, it was unreal. You know, that, and he got the really good ones. I mean, he, the baby is so charming and uh, attractive, even though it's tiny. This, you know, this mummy, Ingpan Man, is so resplendently garbed. Mm -hmm. So the environment in Urumqi, in, in Xinjiang, is very arid, very dry, and this very is the cemetery. Yeah, in all these cemeteries. Got it. Yeah, and that's why they survive. And if you take them into the storerooms and you keep the windows open and you have good ventilation, they're just, they don't really change that much. But if you put them in a damp basement oh. or in the wrong kind of preservation facilities, then they will get moldy and um, they okay. will start to deteriorate. Okay. So, you know, my, in my very first expeditions, you know, I, I tried to give the uh, Chinese glass cases. I got people to donate money, uh, nitrogen-filled cases. I even worked with the Getty Foundation to mm -hmm. uh, design cases that would work in that kind of region. Let me see, Discover Channel, I think, uh, gave $30,000 to build cases. And one other time, I gave $5,000. What do you think is amazing about this exhibition and the materials that are in it? Well, I just, I think the amazing thing about this particular exhibition is that it has so many of the premier pieces from the Institute and from the museum. In the past, when objects from the museum or from the Institute would go abroad, like even to the Metropolitan or to the greatest museums overseas, they'd be lucky to get one or two of the major pieces. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have about a dozen of the best pieces from both of those, from the Institute and from the uh, museum, which is it's, it's extraordinary that they would all come in one show because usually they, they would only want to let a few of the great pieces go out. Mm -hmm. P Peter Keller, with his magic finger, was just saying, I want that and want that. But he, well, but he was lucky. I said, Peter, how did you know what to pick? He said, I just was attracted to this. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But he got all these wonderful, wonderful, I mean, most, all of my favorites are here. Like, okay. uh, we'll I mean, like this hat I love. And here it comes. And what is it, the felt hat? The felt hat, but with the huge, very high peak. I mean, this is very important. Is that been conserved at all? I mean, is that, is that? No, that's just the way. That it, is exactly. Exactly the way it came out of the ground. Okay. They didn't do anything to it. Okay. I mean, look at that beautiful stitching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's decorative, but it's functional also. Mm -hmm. That's probably a, sac a Scythian. Of course, you know, all the stuff we're getting from the Xiaohe, the small river cemetery. Mm -hmm. I think we have, I don't know, 20, 25 pieces from there. It's just like we're bringing a large part of the, a, a significant part of the cemetery. 
where all these objects. Oh, there's there's this oh, is one of my favorite guy. pieces. Okay. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a kilt on. He's got this like um, UC Trojans helmet on. <laughs> USC. His his chest is bare. He's he's a big big nose, deep round eyes, kneeling. He would have been holding weapons or something in his hands, and so. This was found in a remote valley in the uh, Tianshan. Uh, and you just wonder, well, how could a guy like this, you know, a figure like this, show up in the middle of Central Asia in a remote mountain valley? I mean, every time I go to the museum, I just look at him and I'm so puzzled. And here he's coming. I mean, I, I don't know if he's ever traveled before. And then this thing, one of the world's earliest, best-preserved rugs. the woolen subtle blanket with yeah. leaves, leaves, pattern. leaves pattern. I mean, look, it's, it's almost perfect. It's intact. Mm -hmm. And then there's that famous, this thing, this tapestry trousers. 38. A, a pair of trou uh, trousers made from a tapestry, and it's a centaur. There's a centaur. I mean, so, because oh, this is described as a wall hanging, but you're saying it was made into trousers? Yep. Wow. Uh, see, what happened? It, um, they, the a nomadic group of warriors would have rans ransacked and looted a palace in probably in Fergana or Bactria, in that area, or in the western edge of the Pamirs, where there was a lot of uh, Greek and Bactrian influence, Greek influence, and they, they, were, they would have had uh, tapestries, magnificent tapestries. So the nomads attacked the place, ransacked the palace, cut up the, the tapestry and made trousers out of it, fancy wow. trousers. And so, the irony got, of it is, if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have this that's right, right now. <laughs> right. That's right. And, and, they, and this was found in a burial in a place called Sampul, which is near Khotan. And it was found in a burial, in a mass burial, where people were there were probably massacred. So those, see, it came from the western side of the Pamirs. And then, uh, and then ended up in somebody's trousers, and then that guy got... Uh, was part of a massacre, and we got it out of his grave. Mm. <laughs> and the Ingpan man, you know, with, with his... Uh, mm -hmm. So there, there's just one thing after another here that is uh, like the, the choicest items in the, uh, in the museum and in the... Uh, mm. If you get one or two... There have been a lot of shows of the Silk Road objects from uh, Xinjiang around the world, Japan. You know, I've been to many of them. I travel around chasing them. But I've never seen one so rich before. With all of this material, you can really learn so much about their rituals, their beliefs. Like this, this uh, wo basket woven in a straw. It's, it's 3,800 years old. And it's, it's just as though it's, you know, it were uh, woven uh, weeks ago. It's mm -hmm. pristine, it's perfectly preserved. I once looked at a saddle that came from a grave in the place called Subeshi out there, it's complete trappings for a horse, a saddle and the ropes and everything. And I twisted the ropes. It, it, it just, they were uh, 2,400 years old. It was just like they were made last week. Now, were these things buried in soil or were they buried? Sandy, in sand. sandy soil, which yeah. is easier to remove, I guess, than. Ah, you just brush it away. So basically, Whoever excavated, just it's pull not the basket like, out. Don't tell the yeah, sand yeah. or whatever. You just brush the stuff away. or They weren't in containers or in chests or no, anything like that. Maybe some were, I guess. But. Yeah, some were uh, in the sarcophagi you know, or coffins. But a lot of things were just laid right in the earth. Okay. Yeah. 
Hmm. And uh, so there would be a space, and it didn't fill up. So you to ex excavate is very easy. You just take off the top. Hmm. You, you just take off the top layers, and then you've got empty space down there. You don't really have to excavate. It, it's, the sand is of a very special quality, and the best preserved mummies are from that place where, where David is, Zagunluk. Because there, the sands are very soil, uh, salty, saline. And, and, and that helps to preserve, too. But it, definitely the salt content helps to preservation of the textile, all the organic remains. This one site that I was talking about, the church and men came from, Zagunluk. The soil there is so salty. It's essential, you know, the, the local peasants there now, I've, I've seen them. They go up and they dig up the soil and, for the salt. I mean, they're mining salt, and that's these, so the mummies that were buried essentially in a salt field, perfect preservation. Now, have these cemeteries been fully excavated, or have, have a few bodies been brought out and the rest just left? Or? Uh, it, initially, like all of those sites were just um, rescue of a few bodies where there was, Which was in, What was in the way of the road? Got what was in out. the way, mm -hmm. but then you see that looting, uh, looting became a huge problem. Right. And the looters got more sophisticated, more greedy, and more capable, so they would want to excavate everything. So then it meant that uh, the archaeologists had to do more systematic, large-scale excavations and get the permission of the government. So I'll tell you just, for example, about that small river cemetery, which is the last, you know, the last section where, uh, where the beauty of Shalho mm -hmm. comes from, the small river. That was originally excavated, uh, uh, discovered by Folk Bergman, uh, a Swedish archaeologist in 1934. He saw some of the mummies, and he saw these wooden posts and everything, and he, he documented it pretty well back in 1934. He published his book in 1939, and then it was unknown until 2000, the year 2000. Because his, his book was published in a Chinese edition around then. So they all got really interested about it. It's like, oh, there's this site in the middle of the desert. So then there's a race to rediscover it. But it's a race between the archaeologists and the looters. And literally, the, the looters get in first and they start to tear things up. The local archaeologists, the, the Xinjiang archaeologists, will make an appeal to Beijing and say, may we excavate? And then uh, the Be Beijing will say, yeah, and, and we'll even give you money. You know, because to, to excavate, it costs money and you have to have permission of the central government. And so Not they, just the region. The no, they, they, for, you can't do it just with regional permission. So uh, Beijing holds all the control. And um, so they would say, 10 years. It's a big, it's a big mound. It's seven meters high, huge, wow. and uh, full of hundreds of burials, five layers. I mean, they had a plan. The archaeologists had a plan. 10 years of excavation, because it's in the middle of a desert, very harsh conditions. OK, so they go in in 2002 and start to systematically excavate. And then you can only stay in there for so long because the, the conditions are so poor. You know, they're too cold and too much wind or too blazing hot, so you can only go in for a few months. And then they left, and then the looters come in and start to tear the place up. So finally they said, this, they said we're going to do it in three years. And they finished the whole thing in three years. With, they actually had a conveyor. They moved the conveyor out into the desert and moved all the sand off and then put it back up after they got everything out of it. And they keep turning up. And as long as they're doing excavate, uh, construction, they will find more sites mm. all over. And some of these sites are of enormous range. Like, for example, where that centaur tapestry trousers came from. Mm -hmm. 
I stood there at one end of the cemetery, and I was told, you know, these cemeteries, series of cemeteries, continuous for 15 kilometers. I mean, the, the scope of, is extraordinary. And then I've been at other sites out there. You can 15 just, kilometers? Yeah. I'm just like registering that. I know. Wow. They, they, they're just like... And, and so all of these sites, these uh, burial grounds, it's very interesting where they're located. So you have the mountains coming down like this, you know, because it's in a basin. You have the mountains coming down like this. Then you have a tableland. And then, it, then you have the, the, the floor of the desert basin. And then, so mountains... Tableland, desert floor. And it's on the desert floor, right where the, the little streams run out into the desert where you have your oases, and that's where people live. All around, dotted all around the bottom. Like all around, is it like a circular? Yeah. Okay, okay so all around the, the desert, okay. there are these uh, oases sites. But where all, almost every one of the uh, burial grounds is on these tablelands. So it's like a it's like a ledge kind right. of around. Yeah, it's very yes. interesting because yeah. the, just the way the water runoff makes it like that. But actually, that really helps with preservation. Absolutely. Yeah, because the water it keeps you it know, dry. comes out of the mountains through and, there. And then and also, down. this is yeah. not useful wow. for agriculture or anything because no it's very pebbly and it's close to where they live, but mm -hmm. not right where they live. So and it, it's, and it also, for whatever reason, puts their ancestors closer slightly to above them. Whatever. I'm just so excited that this is coming to Penn. Mm -hmm. I'm honored that it's coming here. And I, I'm hoping that it will contribute to the revitalization of the museum, the rebirth, re renaissance of the museum. Uh, and I hope lots and lots of people will come, not just from Philadelphia, but from New York, all the East Coast. Uh, and they will learn a lot. There's so much we can learn from this exhi exhibition. Uh, I want people to take away from it the sense of uh, relatedness and commonality so that when they look at that they don't look upon this these people these mummies in their their culture as strange or exotic but they're just people like us that's why I look when you when you look at these like the little baby I could be looking at my granddaughter you know I, I, I want people to say that they're not weird or strange or exotic, but that they're just human beings who lived a long time ago. And they went to sleep. And, and they made all these beautiful artifacts. And that, you know, they had hard lives. It was very hard to live there. But they had meaningful lives, too, because they, they cared about their clothing. They cared about their appearance. You know, they have, the women have uh, mascara pens, which will be here. You know, they go to blacken their eyebrows. Uh, we have these things, and they had mirrors to look at and comb. Look at how many combs. Very nice combs and beautiful, beautiful clothing. So I want people to get a sense that these people lived 4,000 years ago. I want people who come to our uh, exhibition to think that people who lived 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, they're not that much different from us. And then, uh, like, after we pass away, three or 4,000 years from now, other people might look at us and, uh, you know, so there's a continuity of humanity. And uh, I think by looking at these objects, we can learn something about who we were three or 4,000 years ago, and that we're related to these people. And, and I'm not saying that we Europeans are related, but everybody, humanity is related to them.